our scripture, we are starting a new series, uh, Romans, uh, looking at Romans 5 through 8, and um, this series is called Who Am I? And this is coming out of Paul's epistle, his letter to the church at Rome. Uh, uh, and so our scripture can be found uh, on page 4. Um, page 4, and this is Paul speaking. Hear the words of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, I'll say it again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word of the Lord. The title of this series is called, Who Am I? And I actually got this, uh, this title from the amazing Spider-Man of all places. I get my, uh, my uh, thoughts of brilliance in such strange places. And it comes from a section at the end of the movie where uh, the teacher there at Midtown High is speaking to the students and says, it's been said that there are only 10 plots of fiction in all the novels that have ever been written. And she says, but I say there's only one. Who am I? I think it's true. It's actually been analyzed. An English professor, he analyzed 40,000 different novels and he came up with six different plots. But they all come to the same conclusion. A person discovering who they are and the question being if they can live in accordance with who they want to be. Have you ever met someone who knows who they are? They're actually kind of rare to find, aren't they? Somebody who's grounded, who has a sense of who they are, who is walking purposefully, if you will, who's able to stand in their principles because they have a sense, they know who they are. Jesus really was the epitome of that, wasn't he? People wanted to always knock him off of his course, either to go and, and make him king or to go and put him in some sort of box. But Jesus knew who he was. Now you may say this is a bunch of rubbish, Carlos, a bunch of people sitting around trying to discover themselves. But the Bible clearly says, for instance, in Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That word workmanship in the Greek is poema, which could also be translated his poem, his poetry. Each of us are a specific poem. We've been written in a specific way to proclaim a specific aspect of who God is. It was Paul uh, who wrote that you knit me together in my mother's womb and that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. There is a uniqueness to every person. God has made us individual. We are not a collective. We are not some mass of people, but rather individuals. It was C.S. Lewis that talked about the importance of people and individuals. He said it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other 
to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I believe that the scriptures teach us that Christ came to make us and then to remake us. The scriptures tell us that Christ did not come simply to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive, to make us into the people that we were meant to be before we were marred by sin. You must know who you are, for the world will try to tell you. And if you are not careful, the world will squeeze you into a mold, and you will find yourself in a place you never meant to be, doing things you never meant to do. For the next three months, we are going to be examining this question, who am I? In this book, Romans, which many would say is the greatest summation of the Christian faith, we're looking at Romans 5 through 8. Specifically, what has God done in Jesus Christ in the life of a believer? What has actually happened to us who have been justified through faith? It's going to be an amazing journey. But today, we're going to look at our status the new grace in which we stand, the now that we have been justified before God. I'm speaking, of course, to believers. If you are a believer in Christ, if not who you can be if you choose to believe in Christ. So we're going to look at three specific aspects of this sermon. Number one, this new standing we have with God. What is it? What does it really mean? Number two, the fact that we have to stand on this standing. If we want to enjoy the benefits of the standing that we have, we must stand on it. And finally, number three, we must rejoice in the glory that is coming when what we stand on will be revealed fully. So let's begin. Let's recognize what is this new standing that we have with God. Romans 5.1 says that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word therefore, whenever you see therefore, you need to look at what came before the therefore. And Romans 1 through 4 has been a detailed explanation about Paul talking about what Christ has done. That through his death and resurrection on the cross that he has been a substitute. That his righteousness has been imputed to the believer. That we can be counted as righteous through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so 5 through 8, the therefore, and moving on is going to speak about the practical implications of this. So it says, therefore, since we have been justified. Notice these key terms. First of all, it's in the past tense, isn't it? Not therefore we will be justified or therefore we might be justified, but we have been justified. Also, it's passive, right? Not therefore we have justified ourselves, we have been justified. A verdict has been rendered regarding us. We discover that we actually, our lives are on trial. We like to think that we are our own person and we did do it our way. But the Bible speaks quite differently. 
Indeed, there's nowhere in the Bible where the Bible actually seeks to prove the existence of God. It simply assumes that everyone would understand and know that there is a God. And in fact, over 90% of the world does understand that at the very least. Therefore, since we have been justified, so we need to understand a little more of what this word justified means. When we hear the word, we immediately think of in a legal context, right? If you've been justified, uh, it means to make or to render right or just. To be approved or to stand approved, to stand accepted. Or, my favorite, to be declared to be innocent or blameless. It is a legal term, but at its core it is a relational term. Because even legal terms are all about relationships, right? You go into a courtroom and it is the state of Virginia versus somebody. Or it is a civil trial and it is two particular parties who are against each other. If you have been justified, that means there has been a judge who has proclaimed a verdict. And that judge is God. We must acknowledge the fact that our life is on trial. And that there is a new status that has occurred in the life of a believer. And this status is since they have been justified, found blameless, they now have peace with God. How has this justification occurred? On the basis of my faultless activity? On the basis of my shining spotless record? No, rather... We see, it says, that we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The instrument or means by which we have been justified is by faith in Jesus Christ. In the work of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. Through coming and living a blameless life. Through having a spotless record. Through dying in our place. And through his life being found faultless and being resurrected. And through this magical, mystical way, God has imputed the record of Jesus Christ to me. All of the benefits of his life. It's as if I have been clothed with Christ. It's as if when I went into the, uh, the, the witness box in the trial room, that I magically put on Jesus Christ as I appeared in the box, in the dock, so to speak. Imagine my fear if you had committed a crime, walking into the witness stand to be cross-examined, every, all the evidence laid against you, and yet it is not me standing in the dock, but rather Jesus Christ. Who is going to declare a guilty verdict against Jesus Christ? That's the whole point. The judge looks at him and says, blameless, Indeed, righteous. We are not right with our Creator by our own merits, Paul is saying. If we were based on our own record, if I was based on my own merits, I would not pass. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's a law that's on the books, right? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Failed, me, passed, Jesus Christ. Imputed from Christ to me. 
The scriptures say that although all of us knew God, we have neither glorified nor given thanks to him. But we have worshipped other beings, other created things. Another law which I have failed. Romans 3.23 sums it up by saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are guilty in ourselves. You ever experience the shame of failure or the shame of judgment? I don't know if you were kid, the kid uh, when they were picking kids for kickball and you were the last, right? And they go down the line and they keep on going and you're the last one and you experience the shame. We've all experienced that in some way, shape or form when we got passed over or we weren't invited to the dance or we weren't considered worthy to go to the party. The shame of not being chosen, the shame of not experiencing um, inclusion. The reality is we spend most of our day, people spend most of their day trying to justify their existence. Trying to make this cut with someone to acknowledge them and to count them worthy of glory. And so most people live in what I call an uneasy peace. I don't know if you remember the statement, peace for our time. It was given by Neville Chamberlain, the former Prime Minister of England in 1938. If you'll remember, Hitler was advancing and had militarized the German forces. And so England and France, neither of them wanted war, and so they went and they signed this Munich Agreement hoping to stave off, you know, any sort of conflict. And Neville Chamberlain came back and said, you know, we will have peace for our time. Go home and rest and be at peace. Well, Hitler just took the time that was given to continue to ramp up and blew through the boundaries. There was no peace. Everybody knew it. They simply tried to live with an uneasy peace, which is no peace at all. An uneasy peace is no peace. I think that's sometimes how we feel with God. If you don't know who you are with God, you live in an uneasy peace. I've identified, I think, six different statuses we feel with God. Number one, I'm ignored by Him. That's how you feel with God. Ignored means you get nothing. You don't even get a thought. It's the worst. Indifference is the worst kind of relationship. Number two, I'm his enemy. And therefore what I get from God is his wrath. Number three, I get, uh, I'm tolerated by him. I may get his presence, but there's no smile on his face. Number four, I'm approved by God. I do get his approval. He approves of me. Number five, I'm celebrated by God. And so I get his praise. And finally, number six or seven, whatever it is, I'm adopted by God. I get his heart. See, that's what's really going on here. That's what Paul is talking about. This justification by faith. It's more than simply being approved of or tolerated, or even celebrated. It's about being adopted. It's about becoming in the family of God. 
How shall be, we be made right with God? If we can work harder in ourselves, sort of count up our coins and hope we have enough in the bank to buy our passage to heaven, but we won't make the cut. There's only one way to be justified, and it is through Jesus Christ. And when we choose to rest in him, when we recognize that it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, when we embrace it and when we celebrate it, when we look to no one else but Christ, we will begin to experience the peace that we have, the peace that God counts, gives to us through Jesus Christ. That is my first point, that we must stand firmly in the grace of Jesus Christ or we will fall under the condemnation of the world. Well, this does bring me to my second point, which is if we recognize the source of our justification, Christ, that we have to stand on it. Notice in verse two, it says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We all know the power of access, don't we? Access means the right to enter. I remember we went with the Mannings, we went to see Phil Wickham in concert. And uh, our oldest son, before he passed away, he had actually had uh, Phil Wickham, one of his lyrics in his music, and, and uh, Vicky called up Phil, and, and he gave us uh, backstage passes. Even more than that, he gave us entree to a private meeting with him. And so while the thousands of people were gathering in the, in the mega church there, we got to continue to walk back, to open a door, to go, to gain access, and to talk with Phil Wickham for a little while. See, access gets you from the outer to the inner. And what we see is through Jesus, we have gained access. Jesus has brought us to the Father. Indeed, Christ, uh, Titus says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, we could have access to him, but until we open that door and walk through it, we do not enjoy the benefits of that access. You can have something and not enjoy it, right? And so what, what Paul is talking about here what he's exhorting the Romans to do. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It actually, the Greek, if you want to translate it specifically, it says, let us enjoy peace with God. Let us enjoy. It's not simply something to acknowledge, but it's something to enjoy. It's something to experience. It's something to enter into. Let us enjoy, we're called to this status, into this grace in which we stand. You can almost hear the words, right? You have to come and you have to stand upon it in order to experience the blessings and benefits of it. It is yours, but it's not simply enough for us to be justified. Justification, the experience of our right relationship with God is to be now, by faith. Salvation begins here. And so grace is this field, if you will, that we are supposed to stand in and experience the privileges. Think of all the privileges 
that one would have by having peace with God. That's what it means. Have you ever, you know, you had enmity with someone, you come with them, and you bury your differences or work them out, and now you have peace with them, right? Do you then turn around and walk away from them? Or do you enjoy that peace? Indeed, if it's from enemy to son. The privileges of grace mean the favor of God. That God is smiling upon you. That every hair on your head is numbered. That all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. The same way that you long to shower your child with blessings. In a fallen way God desires with his children. You experience the faithfulness of God when he says I never will leave you or forsake you. That he is our heavenly father. If you are a Christian and you trust in Christ, there is only one face that you should see when you see the face of God in your mind and that is the face of a father, of a smiling God. Indeed, God promises us, his children, that all things work for the good of those who love him. We can even rejoice and be thankful in the hard things that happen because God is right in the middle of them doing something wonderful that we can't even see. I remember uh, uh, reading my son's journals. Some of you had a chance to read, and, and uh, my oldest son, Mark, and he talked a little bit about this. He says, when you know a gift and who the gift is from, it changes everything about the gift. And he says, when I look around the world and I open my eyes with eyes of faith, I can see the blessings that God is showering upon me all the time. When the sun is shining down on my face, when someone smiles at me, when I see nature. And he says, and suddenly the world is a love song in which my heavenly father is singing his love to me in so many different ways. We are called to live and to stand in that love. I don't know if you remember, uh, if you had children, when a child is learning to stand. It's so interesting, isn't it? They can't get up on their own, right? So what do they do? They find something and they grab it and they work themselves up on it, right? And they hold on to it. It helps them to stand up, them grabbing on to something for dear life. And then once they're up, you know, you, you're always looking. If they don't have a level surface, they're going down, right? They're standing on something. It's the foundation upon, and then they, you know, for the, they let go and they raise their hands, and now what is supporting them is that which is beneath them. That's what Paul is saying to the Romans. That's what God is saying to you. We have obtained access into this grace in which we are standing. So let us enjoy the peace we have with God. <clears throat> I think Luther said this. I think this is true. That only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. In their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification. Meaning on their daily work, on the, the good things that they're doing to make them justified for, for God. Few know enough to stand each day 
with a thoroughgoing stand upon the platform of grace. What am I saying? I'm saying that grace is a platform. But we got to stand on it. So then just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith and overflowing with thankfulness. We're either going to stand on the platform of grace or we're going to stand on the platform of the world. And you know what the world's platform is? This is what the world says. You are what people think of you. Talk about a shaky platform, right? You're standing and then someone doesn't think of you and all of a sudden you're falling off to the side. I am what I do. So you have a great day at work and you're on cloud nine. And then you screw it up or somebody doesn't like what you do. And you're on the ground. I am what I have. And so I bankroll and bankroll and accumulate and hoard trying to hold on. If you stand on that platform, you'll never stand firm. If you stand on the platform of other religions, you'll never stand firm. And I mean this with no disrespect. But whether it's Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism or Judaism, your standing is based on your accomplishments, on your righteousness and on your holiness. Christianity, your standing is based on his righteousness and his holiness. I uh, had a chance, I was looking through the internet, the great Sinai, Sauron, and I was looking about, uh, you know, all, there's all this stuff going on right now with uh, citizenship and immigration and DACA and all those different things. And it still is well nigh the most difficult task on earth to become, an Im uh, to become a naturalized citizen in the United States. It's a, it's a process. If you download the form, and I download the form, all the different things that you have to do. You have to find out whether you're eligible. You need to overcome these barriers. You need to fill out these forms. You need to get fingerprinted. You need to go to these interviews. You need to take a civics test. You need to, and if you make it all the way down, eventually you can attend the oath ceremony. And it's the very end, if you will, when you've made all, all the, all the uh, you've walked through all the boxes and there's this last thing to do. By the way, if you want to become a citizen of this country, if you have any hered uh, hereditary titles or positions of nobility, you have to renounce them before, before you become a citizen of the U.S. Did you know that? So, I mean, this, this is shocking. If I knew that, I don't know that I would be a citizen being the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> that being the sandwich, the Monte Cristo. I love the Monte Cristo sandwich, by the way. But I digress. <laughs> Because it means something to enter into the status as a naturalized citizen. Well, you can say, well, I get all these rights. You know, these people who aren't citizens yet, they get all these rights. Yeah, but guess what? They can be taken away. Yeah, you can maybe get a driver's license if you're not a naturalized citizen. But you know what? It says you're not a citizen. And they can take it away from you with each administration. So to stand and to give this oath, and this is the actual oath, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution, the laws of the USA against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I would bear through, uh, a true faith and allegiance to the same 
and it keeps on going that I will perform under direction when required by law, bear arms when required by law, unless a religious exemption, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. And I got to watch some of the videos as they called forward this person from Pakistan and this person from Sri Lanka and this person and when they get their certificate and they hold their flag and they take their picture and you know what? Every single one of them is smiling. Every single one of them. They're rejoicing. Why? Because they belong. Now what do you think they're going to do when they walk out of that office? I'll tell you the first thing they're going to do. They're going to go to the social security office and register as an as a American citizen because you have to go do that in order to be employable as an American citizen. Then they're going to go to the DMV. They're going to go wherever they can and they're going to change their status to who they really are. And they're going to flaunt it and boast in it because they are an American citizen and no one can take that away. That's what Paul is saying to us. Let us enjoy. Let us enjoy that we have peace with God. Right. Relationship. Peace is so much more than simply no war. It's harmony. It's oneness. Let us enjoy when we rise in the morning. Let us enjoy when the doctor says we have six months left to live. Let us give thanks in the midst of Great times and difficult times. For if God is for us, who can be against us? Let us live as a celebrated person. With one eye on God as the other is fixed on the world. Because when I am loved and approved for who I am, I can live as myself. I no longer have to live as an imposter. I no longer have to be anything to anybody. I do believe that the greatest challenge of our life is to simply be the one that God made us to be. Nothing more and nothing less. Stand firmly in the grace of Jesus Christ or fall under the condemnation of the world. The choice is yours. This brings me to my final point. That if we recognize the source of our justification, Christ, and stand on it, we can also rejoice in the glory that is to come. I love this final point where it says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This word rejoice in the New Testament it occurs 37 times. 35 of them, it's translated boast. I don't think that I wish they had changed it. When you boast, you rejoice. But really a better word here is we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Or we are confident in the glory of God. We revel in the glory of God. We proclaim it, if you will. Much like the citizen, a newly minted citizen who comes out and boasts of their citizenship, we boast of the hope of the glory of God. Now Paul isn't speaking of hope as in a it might happen or might not happen. He's speaking about hope in terms of it's going to happen. We just don't know when. We boast 
in what is to come, and what is to come is the glory of God. Well, what does that mean, the glory of God? Well, first of all, I believe it means that we will see the splendor and the beauty of God. We will see him for who he is. The one who, as 1 Timothy says, alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. We will see him through Jesus Christ at the time of his revealing. That we get to see the one that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Jesus himself said that I am going to prepare a house, a room for you in my Father's mansion so that I can take you with me to be where I am, to see the glory of God. One day we will see his face. But those who are not justified in Christ, who have no peace with Christ, will never see the glory, the splendor of the Lord. Indeed, hell is the very place where God is not that's what makes it hell. There is no glory or splendor. There's only darkness. We rejoice in the hope of the splendor of God. But we also rejoice in the glory that is to be revealed in us. Hebrews 2.10 tells us that the purpose of Christ's coming was to bring many sons to glory. That it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. I believe that what is being said here is that the goal of Jesus Christ was to come and to bring us to our glorious state. As C.S. Lewis talked about. To them God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. First John says, Dear children, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. One day, we will go before and look at Christ and we will see ourselves. Meaning we will see the gloriousness of ourselves in his face as the work of grace is completed. See, what grace ultimately is, is glory begun. Consummated at the end of all things. We boast in the truth that even though I am this fallen creature, who has these petty thoughts and continually fall back down and have to grab onto grace and climb up again like a baby, that one day I will stand and I will be glorious. And I will be who I was meant to be. And all will see. I texted my, uh, I was not here last week, I got to see uh, two of my college roommates and we got to spend a weekend together which was wonderful. But one of my college roommates has a son who is autistic. Luke is his name. And it's so hard for him because he knows the Luke that's in there. 
but he has to interact with only that little bit, if you will, of Luke that can get out at this present stage. And so I texted Tad and I said, one day, at the sound of the trumpet, people will wake and they will look at Luke in his fullness and they will stand in awe and amazement at the glory that is in him. We don't have to fear. We don't have to wonder. Indeed, we can boast even now that I am glorious in Christ even though I don't look it. That I am a king even though you can't see my country. That I am immortal even though I'm perishing. All will see it. You've got to stand on who you are in Christ or live like an imposter. It's your choice. So again, my encouragement for you, starting if you want to know who you are. First, if you haven't yet, make a decision. I will stand on Christ and be justified in Him and Him alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. Recognize, bow your knee, and learn to stand on the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And indeed, be so bold as to boast in what is to come, the glory that is to be revealed. For grace is simply glory begun. I'm excited about this journey that we're going to take. I encourage you to come out to community groups this week where you can dialogue with some other brothers and sisters in Christ on what does it mean to stand in grace. Um, after the service, we're actually going to be uh, going over to the fellowship hall and we're going to have, uh, uh, I'm going to be doing a less, uh, we're going to have food and then I'm going to be doing a adult education on prayer. So if you want to learn more of what it means to praise God, and thank God, that's the, the section. We're going to do that now. I've gone too long, so we're going to do um, communion in the chapel. I'm going to close this with a benediction. If you want to take communion, uh, just give us a minute or two, and then you can go into the chapel, which is in the other room, and just come on in. You don't have to sit. Just come on up to me or one of the elders and take communion, okay? Um, let's go ahead and we'll stand, and we're going to sing one stanza a cappella of Amazing Grace. And then I'm going to give the benediction. Yes.